0: It's a great thrill for a Dickensian to be here in Barnard's Inn Hall. Uh, I must be standing just a few yards away from the site where Pip, in Great Expectations, 200 years ago, because the novel was set back in the second, third decade of the 19th century, um, on a dark and very stormy night, Pip heard the footsteps on the stairs of his benefactor, returning from Australia to greet his gentleman again. I can almost feel the reverberations. Anyway, my my topic um, is on uh, Dickens's uh, transition from a writer to a public performer. Of his works. Dickens had three careers, three professional careers. He was a novelist, he was a journalist, and he was a professional public reader for the last 12 years of his life. And those of you who uh, heard Michael Slater's talk um, last week, um, will realized from that the, the, the way in which he, he so deftly set the context that this extraordinary new career of Dickens has blossomed, really, in the last decade of his life. Um, I'm going to organize it uh, in, as it were, a chronological order. So to move from uh, his uh, work uh, at his writing desk and how he set about that to the modes of composition that he employed... Especially in the creation of his characters, to the point where he stood up before his readership, um, one or two thousand uh, sometimes at one go in auditoriums, and read these works to them live. Um, it was uh, th- this third career of his as a, as a public reader, professional public reader, was extraordinarily lucrative. Dickens's estate at his death was around 93,000 pounds and about half of that was estimated to have been income derived from his public readings. So it was extraordinarily profitable for him. Anyway, I'm going to start uh, Dickens at his writing desk. Um, from improvisation to planning in the middle period, how he set to work to create the, uh, the novels. Uh, and then considering the way in which the, the writer is in a peculiarly isolated position and, and how Dickens at his solitary writing desk craved the companionship of the readership that he couldn't see and devised all sorts of means in order to create a special kind of rapport with that invisible readership. And to move from there to his initiating this new career um, uh, and devising the reading desk and the various props, the whole ensemble because he was um, a manic controller. So uh, all of the apparatus necessary for him to maximize the effect of his readings was devised largely by him. Um, And then uh, at the end, we'll see Dickens uh, returning rather reluctantly, turning away from the, the, uh, the performance lectern, the stage, back to his private desk. So it comes full circle. We start with this quotation on that first slide. I've often thought that I should certainly have been as successful on the boards as I have been between them. And Dickens was a very shrewd judge um, of, of his own talents. Well, here is Dickens at his desk in uh, a photo posed, obviously, I think, in uh, a photographer's studio, as well as various other images um, of him. And there were many, many of these images of Dickens at his desk in the act of creation. And I'll come back to some of these later. Um, his desk was immaculate. When he came in in the morning to his desk, wherever he was writing, whichever house he was in, uh, whether he was abroad on holiday, everything on the desk had to be exactly ship shape, clean, tidy, orderly. (coughs) Um, Dickens was uh, very much a kind of control freak in terms of personal discipline and disciplining the space around him. It seems seems odd, doesn't it, that this is the case with with, with Dickens, who seems in in so many other ways to to cross all sorts of boundaries, and indeed, um, getting up to give public readings of his books was, in some ways, transgressing a boundary at the time. But maybe it's it's the case that because he had this wild, vagabond imagination, he needed a, a kind of regularizing framework. Um, Anyway, the whole family uh, was subject to this uh, manic discipline. Uh, Here is his uh, daughter, Mamie, uh, recalling uh, his father's habit of inspecting um, inspecting the house every day. Um, He made a point of visiting every room in the house once each morning. And if a chair was out of its place, or a blind not quite straight, or a crumb left on the floor, woe betide the offender. In spite of this this, um, extraordinary discipline, uh, Dickens was able to compose uh, in the very early stages of his career with uh, extraordinary freedom and, and spontaneity, and to be able to improvise. This is a manuscript page from Oliver Twist, um, which he wrote in uh, Doughty Street, 48 Doughty Street, his first family home uh, where the first of his children were born, uh, which is now, of course, the Charles Dickens Museum in Doughty Street. And here's an account given by his brother-in-law. One night in Doughty Street, Mrs. Charles Dickens, my wife and myself, were sitting round the fire, cosily enjoying a chat when Dickens, for some purpose, came suddenly from his study into the room. What, you here, he exclaimed, I'll bring down my work. It was his monthly portion of Oliver Twist for Bentley's. In a few minutes he returned, manuscript in hand, and while he was pleasantly discoursing, he employed himself in carrying to a corner of the room a little table at which he seated himself and recommenced his writing. We, at his bidding, went on talking our little nothings, he, every now and then, the feather of his pen, still moving rapidly from side to side, put in a cheerful interlude. It was interesting to watch upon the sly the mind and the muscles working or playing in company as new thoughts were being dropped upon the paper and to note the working brow, the set mouth with the tongue slightly pressed against the closed lips, as was his habit. It's extraordinary that Dickens could be creating this, this novel, um, scenes of Oliver in, in Fagin's den while he was in his own cosy middle-class drawing room chatting with uh, his uh, wife and and family. As time went by, this um, capacity to, to improvise freely uh, changed pretty drastically, and the extraordinarily clean manuscript page of Oliver Twist that you see there on the left, um, turned into the the densely corrected uh, manuscript page of the, the Tale of Two Cities and other novels. As time went by, he found it harder and harder. He became more and more pernickety about getting just the right phrase uh, so all sorts of crossings out, and that old spontaneity had gone. As as in- increasingly, he mastered the art of the novelist. Um, one friend who uh, came into Dickens' study uh, late on in Dickens' career uh, saw caught sight of one of these later manuscripts and said to said to Dickens how. Uh, How on earth Uh, can you do without somebody doing a fair copy? Can't you get a secretary to type out a fair copy for the printers? It must be a nightmare for them. And Dickens said, No, I've discovered that if you send that kind of copy to the printer, um, they give it to the seasoned veterans. Of the printing house because they're the only ones who can read my writing like that. If I make a fair copy they give it to the uh, apprentices and the apprentices make a terrible mess of it. So Dickens, canny as ever, continued to uh, refuse fair copying of his manuscripts. But in the middle period of his of his writing, say from the mid-1840s onwards, uh, that free improvisation uh, gave way to much more uh, scrupulous planning. Um, Dickens would establish a governing theme and then a plot that was carefully calculated to articulate that theme. Whereas in Pickwick and Oliver Twist, he just rolled on from month to month um, thinking hardly hardly very far ahead. He got two-thirds of the way through uh, writing Oliver Twist when uh, a dramatization um, of Oliver Twist, there were several that began to appear on the London stage and of course these dramatizations had to invent an ending for the novel which hadn't actually reached its conclusion. Uh, one ending seemed particularly ingenious and a friend um, asked Dickens, "What? aren't you a little bit alarmed that some somebody might anticipate the ending that you've you've got in mind, might guess it and put it on stage. And Dickens said, no, I don't think think that can be the case because I haven't even worked out how it's going to end myself. So he was was happily and confidently um, inventing uh, all the time until, as I say, this, this, this middle period, the late 1840s. And you can see in this slide how different, for example, the cover design for Little Dorrit is from the one of Pickwick Papers. In Pickwick Papers, you simply have hunting, fishing, shooting motifs, um, enclosing an image of Pickwick in a punt and uh, Mr. Winkle shooting at the top, because Dickens couldn't tell his designer what the course of the story overall was going to be. By the time of Little Dorrit, he knew very well what it was going to be. And so it was going to be this enormous... uh, ambitious condition of England novel Um, so at the top you have Britannia in her chariot and the the lords in front of uh, the commoners behind her and then the middle class and and so on and the church institution and state on on right and left Uh, and he's got this 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 portrait in mind of England which the plot involving little Dorrit and Arthur Clennam is going to articulate Um, he's increasingly scrupulous too about the tiniest details, the uh, the names of the characters, major and minor characters, as well, of course, of the title, and would prepare these uh, working notes, um, taking a sheet of paper, folding it in two, and on the left side there um, as a kind of uh, checklist agenda. Uh, he would uh, scribble down the names of of characters and then tick them off when he'd introduced them into that uh, that installment and then on the right um, you have the uh, chapter titles and summaries of what goes on in the chapters. Um, This one enables one to see the the trial titles for David Copperfield and he took a lot of trouble he went through many many versions of that as well as uh, Mr. Mr. Murdstone, uh, how that name uh, emerges on the left-hand side of the the, the, uh, the opening there. First of all, he's going to be Mr. Harden, and then Mr. Murdle, and then Murdstone, and then Murder underneath. So Dickens is um, working with this uh, sense of the way in which the name um, like, like an Elizabethan humor figure, the name is going to denote the the nature of the of the character. Well, after t- after some some time, um, in serializing all of these novels, um, Dickens begins to become increasingly skillful in, as it were, integrating, trying to integrate the sequence of events the pace of the novel with the the day-to-day or month-to-month lives of of his readers Um, and this is a way of closing the gap as it were between him the storyteller and the readers themselves and between his fictional world his imaginary world and the real world of people this is why um, Dickens is so often it's so often suggested that Dickens would be a, a, a very ingenious uh, writer of soaps. Soaps that engulf the lives of, of those who, who uh, follow them uh, on television or, or, or radio. Around the time when he is beginning to start this planning, Dickens declares in uh, a preface to um, Master Humphrey's Clock, which housed the old curiosity shop and uh, Barnaby Rudge, In a short address to his readers, he says, to commune with you in any form is to me a labor of love. To commune with you in any form is to me a labor of love. It's almost prophetic of the way in which he's later going to commune with them face to face in the halls all around uh, Britain and, and in America. A labor of love. So here, in uh, his working notes for Little Dorrit, just to give one instance, Um, he's bringing together a group of disparate people at the beginning of the novel, uh, in uh, quarantine, topical, uh, in Marseille, before they return to England. They have to stay there um, uh, in quarantine, having landed at Marseille port and on the way to England for a period. Uh, they, They, slightly get to know each other, and then they part. And Dickens writes a little memo to himself, uh, thinking that this is a good strategy to develop in a serial novel. People to meet and part as travelers do, and the future connection between them in the story, not to be now shown to the reader, but to be worked out as in life. Try this uncertainty and this not putting of them together as a new means of interest. Indicate and carry through this intention. As in life. So he's aligning the pace of development in his fictional world uh, with that of experience in, in the real world. And grafting, as it were, his imaginary world more closely over our real lives, or his, his contemporary readers' real lives. This is a way of bringing people closer together, hooking them in. Writing is a lonely business, um, and particularly for someone with Dickens' own um, very strong needs. Uh, a need particularly to be able to create this community between uh, the writer and the readers, and I've I've read one, uh, I've read out one quotation already to you. To commune with you in any form is to me a labour of love. But here in Nicholas Nickleby, <clears throat> Dickens's third third novel, um, he becomes a bit more florid in his addresses, his quite personal addresses to the reader. When he finishes the serialization of Nicholas Nickleby um, after just over a year and a half, he writes the preface. Um, and in the course of the preface, he quotes a writer, an 18th century writer as follows. This is, he's quoting Henry Mackenzie. The author of a periodical performance commits to his readers, the feelings of the day in the language, which those feelings have prompted. And as he has delivered himself with the freedom of intimacy and the cordiality of friendship, he will naturally look for the indulgence which those relations may claim. And when he bids his readers adieu, will hope as well as feel the regrets of an acquaintance and the tenderness of a friend. Obviously sentiments that Dickens really warmed to. And now look at the closing paragraph by Dickens himself. With such feelings and such hopes, the periodical essayist, the author of these pages, Nicholas Nickleby, now lays them before his readers in a completed form, flattering himself like the writer just quoted, that on the first of next month, they may miss his company at the accustomed time as something which used to be expected with pleasure. And think of the papers which on that day of so many past months they have read as the correspondence of one who wished their happiness and contributed to their amusement. Reluctant to say farewell and hoping that his readers will miss him. And as if to reinforce this very personal rapport that Dickens was trying to develop with his Uh, readership, Um, he and his publishers decide to put a little oval portrait of Dickens, an engraving of the famous Macleese portrait, as the frontispiece. Um, The first time, really, uh, Dickens is is, is glimpsed by his readership. But Dickens wants to show himself, as well as express his closeness of feeling. In addition to that, instead of putting printing underneath uh, Charles Dickens by Daniel Macleese, they print uh, a facsimile of Dickens' own signature. So he signs himself off to his reader, faithfully yours, Charles Dickens. You you could hardly get much more personal as a writer with with a readership that that you can't see. This sense of uh, correspondence... Think of the papers which on that day of so many past months they have read as the correspondence of one who wished their happiness and contributed to their amusement. Um, The idea of a novel as correspondence from the author is something that um, I was going to say tickles Dickens's fancy, but is actually much more vital to him. Here are some more remarks that Dickens makes on this subject, writing to friends I wish you would regard my Christmas books and dombies and so forth as letters to you. And again, I really think so often of my friends in writing my books and have the happiness of knowing they think so much of reading them that I have a sort of stupid sense as if they served for letters. So, this Strongly personal need for communication grows and grows on Dickens, and the need to um, establish some particular kind of rapport. Um, curiously the well, not curiously, I suppose, um, naturally enough, the framework idea for Dickens's very first book involved the idea of letter-written reports coming in at various intervals. And this is Pickwick Papers. Here's the agenda at the beginning of Pickwick Papers. The co- that the corresponding society, the society that keeps in touch through letters, of the Pickwick Club is therefore constitute, hereby constituted. Um, and the uh, members are named. And they are requested to forward from time to time authenticated accounts of their journeys And investigations, observations of character and manners, which is exactly what Dickens is doing uh, month by month in Pickwick papers. And this sets uh, a lifelong pattern for the nature of Dickens' relationship with his readers. Have a look at the obituary from the Illustrated London News on the same slide. It was just as if, or, the, or that, the immediate personal companionship between the writer and the reader, third or fourth line. It was just as if we received a letter or a visit at regular intervals from a kindly observant gossip who was in the habit of watching the domestic life of the Nicklebees or the Chuzzlewits and would let us know from time to time how they were going on. That was That was the core of the relationship. There was no assumption, it goes on to say, in general, of having a complete and finished history to deliver. He came at fixed periods merely to report what he had perceived since his last budget. Um, This is is probably the key reason why Dickens uh, resolved to continue to issue his novels in serial form, monthly or weekly, because it sustained that uh, regular communication with his readership which if he had uh, worked on a novel uh for a year or so uh and then published it and issued it in the standard three volumes he would lose that that personal touch that personal connection between um himself and his his public um well i've said that uh writing is a lonely business and dickens certainly felt that uh, acutely um So created this communication insofar as he was able to as a solitary author between himself and his readership. But he also uh, created a community between him and his characters um, who formed um, a company for him. And there are many, as I said at the beginning, many of these uh, cartoons, or capriccios of Dickens surrounded by his characters, uh, the characters that he has created who then become his, his companions. Dickens' son Charlie, his oldest son Charlie, bore witness to the importance to Dickens of the companionship of his characters. He lived, I'm sure, two lives. One with us and one with his fictitious people, and I'm equally certain that the children of his brain were much more real to him at times than we were. I have often and often heard him complain that he could not get the people of his imagination to do what he wanted, and that they would insist on working out their histories in their way and not his. I can very well remember his describing their flocking round his table in the quiet hours of a summer morning, when he was an unusual circumstance with him at work very early each one of them claiming and demanding instant personal attention. The exercise of, of, of composition of these characters who were to help sustain him in his loneliness in, in his study um, is, is quite complicated. Um, There are various versions of uh, Dickens at work, various accounts and speculations of Dickens at work, and indeed various versions of the act of creation that Dickens himself um, testified to. Uh, One is uh, a kind of passivity. In this famous uh, painting, uh, Dickens's Dream, We see the uh, author detached from from his desk in in a kind of reverie. And here's some comments from uh, Dickens and from uh, a friend of his, G. H. Lewis. Dickens once declared to me that every word said by his characters was distinctly heard by him. And Dickens. When I sit down to my book, some beneficent power shows it all to me and tempts me to be interested, and I don't invent it, really do not, but see it and write it down. So it's as though he he doesn't have to do anything. He simply gets himself in a a certain frame of mind, and the story and the characters come up spontaneously uh, in front of him. Uh, And that's presumably why uh, R. W. Buss uh, conceives of the painting in this way of these, these characters in, in groups or singles swirling about him like ectoplasm as though this kind of creative energy is just uh, evaporating from him and, and filling, filling the void. The other uh, kind of, of creation is, is not at all passive Uh, And this draws on the uh, account, famous account, by uh, Dickens's daughter Mamie. Uh, On one occasion in the 1850s, when she was ill, she was allowed into Dickens's study. He he never uh, brought anyone else in because it would would distract him, as it were, distract him from his necessary solitude. Um, And he he said, um, nobody else is in the house to look after her. He said, please just uh, lie on the couch um, and try and keep as quiet as possible unless you unless you feel particularly ill in which case let me know. Um, and uh, so Mamie watched her father at work at his desk and saw that every now and again he would he would suddenly jump up and go over to one of the many mirrors in the room and start making faces in the mirror. Uh, go back to his desk and start writing very busily and get up again, Go back over to the mirror, make more faces, sometimes making sounds, strange voices into the mirror as he watched the contortions of expression in the mirror, uh, and then look into the middle distance and go back to his desk and write again um, so here he was he was creating and uh, or, and almost auditioning his characters in front of the mirror, uh, their their voices and their looks, so that he could then describe, as it were, what he saw in his imagination when he put uh, Quill to, to paper. Um, he evidently had a very uh, particular knowledge of every single movement of, of, of his characters, how they looked, how they spoke. Um, he told one uh, friend that uh, he knew much more about his characters than were ever written in the book. So they had a life outside the book, which never got into the book. Um, And he would uh, occasionally um, pose for the illustrator to indicate the sort of posture that he wanted when uh, the illustrator was saying, well, how would Mr. Jasper look in in the mystery of Edwin Drood uh, as as in here? So this combination of um, a craving of close rapport, with his public and the impulse in his study to perform his characters, the combination of these two could only uh, lead to, to one outcome, and that is to head towards the, the, uh, the stage. Um, Dickens uh, was a born actor, could have made an acting career, uh, certainly persuaded those who saw him act that he was immensely gifted. There's the uh, comment by uh, one stagehand uh, who had been involved in one of Dickens' amateur theatricals uh, who confided to Dickens when they were alone together, what an actor you would have been, Mr. Dickens, if it hadn't been for them books. Dickens uh, had had a delight in inhabiting other other characters. Um, a, A particular delight and in organizing amateur theatricals. And uh, there's one comment that he makes, which I think is very significant for what I'm coming on to now. And this is at the bottom of this uh, slide. He's talking about The Frozen Deep, the, the fateful play in which he takes the lead part. As to the play itself, when it is made as good as my care can make it, I derive a strange feeling of it Like writing a book in company, a satisfaction of the most singular kind which has no exact parallel in my life. So, writing a book in company, in a way, is what I've tried to describe he was doing, except that the company was virtual. Uh, On the stage, He's with a group of other people that's one company and he's in front of an audience that's another company and this is a much more uh, invigorating inspiring experience of creation of of character creation on stage Um, and so Dickens decides to take the plunge and to convert these occasional readings for charity into a professional career as a means He says here, of strengthening those relations, I may almost say of personal friendship, which is my great privilege and pride and my responsibility to hold with a multitude of persons who will never hear my voice nor see my face. And so I come among you here to uh, deliver my novels in person on stage, Uh, which he did. And I'm going on to look at some of the preparations that he made for this. It's important to stress that the readings were a kind for Dickens a kind of compromise between private drawing room entertainment and public theatre. No doubt he wanted the full experience of public theatre but he presented himself as a gentleman in uh, white tie and tails uh, behind a desk uh, delivering a kind of drawing room entertainment. He never strayed either side from his desk. He kept that discipline. Uh, Furthermore, he he hardly ever gave readings and he gave about 475 readings uh, in North America and in Britain. Um, And he very seldom gave them in theatres, in public theatres. He preferred mechanics institutes, concert rooms, uh, assembly rooms, town halls, and so on. Um, Here he is, experimenting with various desks. First ones that only revealed his, his face and then bit by bit, um, his own, devi- own devised desk uh, there on the right. When I first entered on this interpretation of myself, I was sustained by the hope that I could drop into some heart some new expression of the meaning of my books that would touch them in a new way. Some new expression of the meaning of my books so we we'll touch them in a new way. We'll come on to this new expression of books. Uh, this is Dickens' own drawing of uh, the reading desk that he eventually devised. So instead of this very high kind of pulpit lectern, which concealed most of him, um, he reduced it to the point where he could free the whole of his upper body to uh, be able to, to give gestures and full physical as well as facial expression to, to his readings. And it was this desk that he devised and had specially made that he took around uh, America, uh, as well as uh, all, over, all over Britain. Uh, and this, we don't have any uh, <clears throat> really um, helpful, detailed uh, visual description of the the set itself, but there was a sounding board behind Dickens because he had to project without microphone out to halls where there might be one and a half thousand people and and sometimes people simply didn't didn't hear him, uh, however much he tried to doctor the acoustics. He and his team tried to doctor the acoustics. but he read in a frame of gas gas jets. Uh, bright gas jets um, that would uh, illuminate him uh, pretty fiercely. Uh, And he traveled with uh, a special lighting man, uh, a a gas man, as well as two or three other people and his manager, a crew of about four or five, uh, all the way around America and and Britain with this collapsible, movable set. Um, The Of course, gas, having to plug gas into the supplies in halls uh, everywhere he went was a rather perilous, uh, perilous business. Um, And there were several mishaps. Uh, One I just mentioned here in Worcester, Massachusetts, at a reading. The hall where he was due to read, not a theater again, uh, had been prepared for a a three-day exhibition organized by the New England Poultry Club and about 250 fowls were lodged overnight in premises just off the, the main hall. Um, come the time of the reading, uh, the gas lights came up gently in the hall, and particularly when Dickens's stage lights were on full, the birds who had bedded down for the night saw the light seeping into their quarters, assumed it was dawn, and the crescendo of crowing accompanied Dickens' readings for some time. Um we have no uh sound recording of course of Dickens giving a reading only ear witness records of how he impersonated his characters um from these uh scripts that he he devised himself I'll give one or two examples of uh how an, uh, how uh, a witness heard Dickens This is Mrs Gamp Uh, Dickens' rendering of Mrs. Gamp. Take a comb, cover it with tissue paper, and attempt to sing through it, and you have an admirable idea of the quality of Mrs. Gamp's vocal organ, provided you make the proper allowance for an inordinate use of snuff. She holds all notions of light and shade in contempt, and with monotonous cadence, produces effects on her readers undreamt of, uh, on her heroes undreamt of by her readers." Take a comb, and, and, and you make, you make, you make a, a strange sort of noise uh, that to, to represent Mrs. Gamp, the nurse, midwife, and attendant on the dead. Uh, here she is. Um, she's a tipsy widow of a husband who, who drank himself to death, and she might have sounded something like this when she's newly engaged to attend a family with a recent death. Oh, and so the gentleman's dead, sir. Oh, more's the pity. But it's what we must all come to. It's as certain as being born, except that we can't make our calculations as exact. Oh, poor dear, when Gamp was summons to his long home and I sees him lying in the hospital with a penny piece on each eye and his wooden leg under his left arm, I thought I should have fainted away, but I bore up. Oh, I bore up. Dickens reveled in this, uh, uh, this, this kind of gruesome imagery. And I'm sorry if um, there are people uh, listening to this over their lunch table, but he, he trans Dickens transferred himself physically into his characters. Um, Scrooge, the old wizened refrigerator who sheds chills around him, is built physically by Dickens to sound a certain way. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, made his thin lips blue and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. Humbug, <laughs> if I could work my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding. And Buried with a stake of holly through his heart, he should. And when he comes to Fagin, uh, in the famous reading of Sykes and Nancy, um, he transformed himself physically, turned his hands into talons and and would claw the air. Uh, His voice was very subtly registered. Um, there were many, many uh, representations, stereotypical representations of Jews of Fagin's kind on the London stage. And people remarked how very different and how very much more natural Dickens' Fagin was. Um, in fact, people generally at the readings were, were quite struck by the unexpectedly naturalistic manner of Dickens' impersonations of his famous figures. This is one of the most interesting things about these readings. Uh, and I think that Dickens's stage naturalism was a way for him to recuperate his characters from the cartoon caricatures they had become in the hands of Fizz and, and Leach and, and Crookshank. In effect, Dickens up there, night after night, on stage, in front of hundreds of his readers, was publishing new editions of his popular early works, his finally final devised piece was the uh, infamous reading of *Sykes and Nancy*, involving the murder of, of Nancy. Um, Dickens was already ailing um, at this at this time, and uh, it was to be. Um, in many ways fatal for him to continue with this, but against doctor's orders, he he persevered. Uh, The little note on the left um, is his doctor's notes, doctor would be in the wings uh, for many of these later performances, registering Dickens's pulse rate. And I'm going to finish with one one description, one I think very vivid description. It's not of Sykes and Nancy, it's a reading of, of, of Copperfield And it's by Thackeray's daughter, Um, and I'm not sure which reading it is. It's sometime probably in the middle of the 1860s when um, she's invited uh, with uh, Dickens' daughter, they were friends, to uh, a performance of Dickens' reading of Copperfield in St. James's Hall. And I put up here a a strange um, portrait of Dickens' reading. I mean, it's not Dickens' reading. I don't know where it came from. Uh, It's it's currently housed in the um, uh, Charles Dickens Museum, but it's very difficult to tell the date and and who who painted it. Anyway, it's useful for this particular purpose. We sat in front, a little to the right of the platform. The great hall was somewhat dimly lighted, considering the crowds assembled there. The slight figure stood alone, quietly facing the long rows of people. He seemed holding the great audience in some mysterious way from the empty stage. Quite immediately, the story began. Copperfield and Steerforth, Yarmouth and the Fisherman and Peggotty, and then the rising storm, all was there before us. It was not acting, it was not music, nor harmony of sound and color, And yet I still have an impression of all these things as I think of that occasion. The lights shone from the fisherman's home. Then after laughter, terror fell. The storm rose. Finally, we were all breathlessly watching from the shore. And this, I remember most vividly of all, a great wave seemed to fall, splashing onto the platform from overhead. Carrying away everything before it, and the boat, and the figure of Steerforth in his red sailor's cap fighting for his life by the mast. Someone called out. Was it Mr. Dickens himself who threw up his arms? It was all over. We were half laughing, half crying with excitement, being at that special time still very much wrought up, remembering the past. Naturally, our emotions took shape. Um, That is is the full painting from which I detached this this scene behind. But it's it's the only one I know that that tries to give that impression of the way in which um, Dickens' stories came to life behind him and around him as he impersonated his characters and and built his sets uh, for the imagination of this audience. Well, Dickens' health um, broke down in the spring of 1869, possibly a minor stroke down his left side. And he was prone to occasional verbal stumbles. Uh, One night in London at uh, a reading at St. James's Hall, his son was in the audience uh, in the front row, and um, Dickens was reading the trial, and he couldn't pronounce the name Pickwick. Uh, Of all names, Dickens couldn't pronounce the name Pickwick because of this disabling stroke. Uh, He pronounced it Picksnick, Picknick, Pickwicks, struggled and struggled and then gave a surprise grin to his son who was obviously in a state of of some panic. Um, The reading stopped on doctor's orders and family insistence and a series of farewell final readings in London was devised from February to March 1870. The last reading was the 15th of March and Dickens read the the trial and um, the Carol, Pickwick trial and Carol left the stage thunderous applause he came back onto the stage and uh, gave a short speech of which this is part. Ladies and gentlemen in but two short weeks from this time I hope that you may enter in your own homes, on a new series of readings, at which my assistance will be indispensable. But from these garish lights, I vanish now forevermore, with a heartfelt, grateful, respectful, and affectionate farewell." Uh, Well, (coughs) it wasn't really a farewell. Dickens couldn't say goodbye. In fact, as that implies, his audience was simply to become his readership again. So Dickens returns to his solitary writing desk and replaced his actual public presence with his virtual presence as the storyteller who guaranteed to pay his regular installment visits every month for his devoted readers. And, alas, of course, it was a pledge that was too short-lived. Twelve weeks um, after this uh, final performance at St. James's Hall, he had his fatal stroke at Gad's Hill. Thank you.
1: Professor Andrews, thank you very much for a fascinating lecture. It has um, inspired a few people online, (laughs) <laughs> to ask some questions. So if I may um, present these to you, we won't be able to get to all of them, but I will try to do as many as possible. Um, did Dickens find British and American audiences for his readings reacted differently? Mm. And if so, how did he respond to this, for example, by choosing different pieces to read or by reading more or less dramatically?
0: Mm. <clears throat> yes. Um, the, well, the one report that... that um... I've picked up is that when Dickens returned from the American uh, tour, um, his his readings were more melodramatic, more pronounced, uh, more more flamboyant uh, for his English audience than for than for the Americans. So whether it was because the Americans wanted something something bigger, um, more uh, somehow more more dramatic. Um, more caricatured, uh, I'm not sure. But um, uh, there was a comment that I meant to um, read out here. Just bear just with me one minute. Um, uh, yes, this is, uh, pa- 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 this perhaps keys into that question about British and American audiences. Um, here's one report. From uh, an English magazine, uh, when the reviewer went to see Sykes and Nancy. Um, It was a great study to watch the faces of the people, eager, excited, intent, permitted for once in a lifetime to be natural, forgetting to be British, and cynical and unimpassioned. (laughs) Yeah. So I think, um, and also in America, he was reading to much bigger halls, I think. So he had to amplify uh, everything that he did much more. Uh, Maybe when he came back to the smaller English halls, that was too amplified, and he had to scale, scale it down a bit.
1: I have a question from uh, a PhD candidate at Cambridge who is defending her dissertation tomorrow. (laughs) It is on uh, uh, reading prompt copies, his reading prompt copies. She says that you've inspired her today. Um, My question is about, what do you think about Dickens' claims around his rehearsing of readings, like Marigold 200 times, for instance, and the relationship between rehearsal and the prompt copies? The books themselves essentially become props by the end.
0: Yes, yes, that's that, that's right. Absolutely right. Um, <clears throat> um, he did he did rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. He was he was a, a perfectionist, mm-hmm. um, and uh, towards the latter part of this reading career, um, he reported that he he now knew all of his readings off by heart, and uh, there are about sixteen um, separate texts of readings. And given that his performances lasted about two hours, it was an astonishing feat of memory. But I also wonder whether it wasn't um, due to his having uh, two or three minor strokes that um, certainly in, in one of the later strokes, uh, he was partly paralyzed down the left-hand side. So it was hard for him to hold the book. So it was just as well that he learned it off by heart. But. Um, yes uh, he um, the bo- the book the book was there with him i think to to reassure audiences who were a bit um, victorian prudish perhaps about going to the theatre that they weren 't in a theatre they were in a a, a a kind of version of a drawing room and here was a gentleman reading with a book, and he actually had a book. If he'd put the book down and just done that, he would have been part of the way to theater. But um, several people recorded the the, the, uh, extraordinary moment when he was reading Sykes and Nancy, where he virtually threw the book aside and started to batter Nancy to death. (laughs) That must have been a great moment.
1: Yes. Um, That leads on to a a question from uh, a scholar who's based in Italy. Um, She's asking, when Dickens first thinks about becoming a public reader, he asks Forster whether it would be infra dig or beneath him to do it. Forster thinks so and discouraged it at this point. Can you comment on this concern by Forster and how a public reader was perceived at this point in time?
0: Yes. Yes. Um, it, it goes back to this um, this question uh, of Dickens realizing that he had to. Um, Walk a tightrope between being uh, surrendering to, to theater much as he, his impulses would have led him to, and being the gentlemanly uh, evening dress figure um, uh, r- reading and uh, and and acting a little bit from from a book um, And and Forster reacted very strongly against this idea of Dickens making himself a public spectacle for money. He he wasn't bothered when Dickens gave charity readings, but he he was doing it for money. And so Dickens is very careful in in one of these... um, I can't remember where it is. This is probably... um, a means of strengthening those relations, uh, personal friendship, which is my great privilege and my responsibility to hold. Thus, it is that I come quite naturally to be here among you at this time and to read this little book quite as composedly as I might proceed to write it. So there's nothing theatrical about it. It's perfectly natural. It's not artificial. And I think that's the stress that he makes in speech after speech in the early days when he is subject to these sorts of criticisms. Why is a gentleman demeaning himself? in this way.
1: That leads nicely on to another question, which is, um, we know that Dickens earned a healthy amount from his lecture mm. tours, um, but do you think that this was um, the main reason, or that his main aim was this relationship with the audience that he was trying to encourage and foster?
0: Well, I think both. Um, I think the money, the money was immensely reassuring. He had high expenses, especially after the family broke up. Um, and he wanted to live reasonably well. He did a lot of, uh, of, entertaining, but of course, from his childhood experiences, he was insecure about money. Okay. So it was, it was a great security to have that. Um, and, uh, and, it, and it brought in much more. I mean, his, his average earnings from his writings, each year was uh, averaged out, it <clears throat> was just, just below 3,000 pounds, it's been estimated. Well, I mean, he could get, uh, a, a thousand guineas, uh, from 25 readings. So you can see the, um, uh, the, the profit. He came away from America with, um, something like two and a quarter, just over two million pounds in profit. It, it, um, two million in current figures from that that tour of America, but <clears throat> it, I, I think it's been well said that the the one you know, Dick, Dickens's family broke up, um, he, he lost some, he lost loved ones here and there, but the one the one enduring love relationship that he had in his life was the one he had with his reading public. And I think that probably addressed um, it.
1: One, one, I think, probably the last question we're going to be able to manage. Um, this is from Christine Corton, who says, thanks, Malcolm, for such an excellent lecture. I wonder how you would compare Dickens' relationship to his reader and Anthony Trollope's, where Trollope often involves the reader with novelistic devices or plots he will use quite openly. So I think it's about that a direct address to the reader that um, Trollope kind of involves himself in at times.
0: Sorry, the, the question began. Um...
1: I wondered how you would compare Dickens' relationship to his readers and Anthony Trollope's, where Trollope often involves the reader with novelistic devices or plots Mm. that he'll use quite openly.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, uh, Dickens is is altogether bolder, I think, and more insistent. I mean, it's it's an interesting question. Um, you're more aware, I think, of Dickens as a as a presence, almost as another character in his novels, um, even when it's not first person novel like Dick *Copperfield* or, or um, *Great Expectations*. There's there's an insistent sense that um, you're aware of the storyteller conjurer, magician at work, um, manipulating, um, making fanciful metaphors. Uh, cracking jokes, digging digging you in the ribs now and again, as well as conjuring this extraordinary realistic world. And I think Trollope Trollope recedes more from that. You're you're certainly aware of him there judging, but he does it with um, perhaps greater subtlety. So he's certainly in a more muted way than Dickens.
1: That's great. Um, Thank you so much once again for a wonderful lecture and for your generosity in, in addressing these questions. And thank you to our audience for attending.